guys look particularly handsome today. By guys, I mean everybody. Just good looking in general. But I wanted to say the reason, you know, that I came to know the Lord, I was a <clears throat> very rebellious, went away from the Lord. And the reason that, that I came back and came to know the Lord is because of my mom. You know, my mom, I remember one thing about my mom every morning if I woke up early, which was hardly ever, but every morning I did wake up early, if I'd go out into the living room, she'd be sitting in my dad's recliner, lazy boy, with her Bible open, reading her Bible, and a cup of coffee on the table. She taught me two things that were necessary in daily life, coffee and the Bible. Wait, the Bible and coffee. But seriously, it was the way that she had impacted me by, by raising me and raising us that, that um, that really puts me where I am today. I know the Lord, His grace also helps us in that way, but it wasn't just her. You know, I grew up and I, and I was gone for a decade. I was gone for 10 years in, in Eastern Europe, and we met other people, we met other ladies who who were like that to me as well. I remember one lady in particular, her, her name was Gwen, and she was British, and she was a missionary at the Bible College, and she was really always loving on me. I'm like, why is this lady so nice to me? And I realized it was because I'm lovable. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I realized it was because I needed it. You know, I needed somebody to give me that maternal affirmation from now and again, and and. I just want to say, like, if, if you're a lady here this morning, I don't want, want this to sound generic or silly, you know, but if you're a lady here this morning and you have never had any kids or you don't have any kids, it doesn't mean that you can be a mother to somebody, you know? And we're, we're thankful for you, too. We're grateful for, for uh, another lady, who, uh, another British lady named Allison in Austria when, when I served in Austria, who was never able to have children. She wasn't able to have kids. And she took us on as her kids. And I'll tell you what, she has more kids now than she ever dreamed she would have before. And she'll tell you that herself. So thank you, ladies. Thank you for the way that God made you to be. Keep it that way. And keep allowing him to use you to love others the way that, that mothers do. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for these ladies. We pray that you would bless them, Lord, that you would remind them that they have ultimate worth in your eyes. You, you, you died on the cross for their sins. And while we do make mistakes, while we do stumble, while we are sinful, God, you, you bring us through. We're, with, with man, it seems impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So God, we pray that you would teach us in your word today. Continue to allow us to see what it means like to be your disciple, not in word, but in deed. Indeed. That we could follow you in righteousness and in truth. That we could be that example of who you are to this lost and dying world. Teach us, God. Thank you for the love that you've poured out into us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this discipleship series. We're on the fourth of our, our five-part series. The first one was denial. The second one was opposition or oppression. Last week's was instruction. And today's is lifestyle. When we look at what it means to be a disciple, it always starts with denial. 
You know, that first study, Jesus says explicitly, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your, your cross and you have to follow me. There's a crucifying of the flesh that's involved. And every study that we look like, the fourth and the next one, up until now, there's always an element of self-sacrifice that's involved. There's always an element of self-denial that's involved. And you know what? That goes opposite to our human nature. Human nature says you are good enough. You are the best. Try harder. We're going to see today that's, that, that's, not a, that's not the case. Really quickly, last week Jesus gave us seven things. We had seven points. He gave us seven things of what it looks like to be a disciple. Number one, does anybody remember what number one was? Servant of all. Denial. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? You've got to serve others. Number two. You have to receive anyone. None of this elitist mentality, I am better than you are. Even within the church, it becomes divisive, and it's not good for growth. It's not good for us to look like we are who we are called as Christians, because that's not what real Christians look like. They're not exclusive. Number four, willing to receive from others. Remember, the, the disciples said, hey, that guy's casting out demons, but he's not with us. Can we tell him to stop? He says, if he's not against us, he's for us. And if he offers you a cup of water in my name, he will by no means lose his reward. So I can look at somebody else that I'm at odds with, or I think I am, but in reality, I'm really not. And if they have something to offer me, I should be willing as a disciple of Jesus Christ, who's doing, they're doing it in his name, to receive what they have to say. Does that make sense? It does to me. Number five, don't cause others to stumble. Number six was how to deal with the flesh. Number seven was salt and fire. It was the fact that we are all going to go through trials and tribulations as disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we go through those trials and tribulations, we're going to be refined. We're going to be shown as genuine. Isn't that something like that our society needs? Like I feel like there's so few people who are genuinely genuine. I feel like there's so many people who just say the right things and act the right way and do the right things. And we just need people who are genuine. That's what the refining fire does for us as believers. It, it burns away the chaff, the stuff that's garbage, and it shows what really should be there. And then today in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at lifestyle. There's three things about lifestyle that Jesus is going to address for the disciples and the others that are gathered around there that, at that moment. The first thing, marriage. Marriage is a big deal with God. And I know that this is somewhat of a sensitive subject in our day and age. We don't want to talk about marriage in the church because we don't want to offend anybody. Who can get married? Who can't get married? What is a man's role? What is a woman's role? You know what? God addresses it, and it's pretty simple. So we're not going to dive deep into the depths of what marriage should look like, but we're going to see as a disciple what Jesus expects from us and what our view of marriage should look like. Number two, what's number two? Kids you got to deal with them, whether you're a parent or not. 
No matter how old you are, you either got younger brothers and sisters or you're around them at some point or, you know, if nothing else, you come to church and there's kids everywhere and you got to deal with them. That's part of life. Number three, what's number three? The rich young ruler, probably one of the most very clear depictions for us of what God intends for us in regards to possessions. We're going to look at that a little bit more in depth about what that means. It's not just being rich in money. We'll see what else he means, but let's jump into chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples still. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. As he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? Now remember with me, we've been seeing over the last few weeks that Jesus' intentions are to go to Jerusalem. But if he goes to a place, sometimes he even tries to you know, get around certain areas. He says, don't tell anybody I'm in the area. But if people do find out and they go there, he never turns them away. I was just talking with a brother about that this week. Do you know in the Bible that Jesus never turns anybody away? He's on a mission. He's going to Jerusalem. These people are crowding him. I'd be like, get lost. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You know, it says again twice there. Because he's doing it again and again and again. But he's willing to say, okay, here they are. They want to be taught. I guess I'll teach them. The Pharisees came while he's talking to these, this crowd, this group of people as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? You know, their intention was to trap him. As much as the question of marriage is a controversial subject today, it was just as much, if not the same, in Jesus' day. Doesn't that blow your mind? People say that the Bible, you know, is, is archaic and it's old and it doesn't apply to life today. But everything in the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it all speaks to us today. It gives us instruction for today. And if they were struggling with it back then, are we any better than, than that generation to say that we shouldn't be struggling with questions about marriage? No, they have questions. There was a scandal. There was a king and a queen who were divorced from their spouses to remarry within the nation of Israel at that time. Maybe they could escalate the situation so that Jesus get, get in trouble with the higher officials by his, his uh, position on divorce if they pushed him in that direction. Does that make sense? Whatever their intentions were, and I think that it's clear in the text, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now, this concept of divorce, it's, it's gone into a little bit more detail in the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen Mark kind of goes through quickly. He, he wants to give us a picture by giving us an illustration of something rather than breaking it down. In the language and in the Gospel of Matthew specifically, the question was, can I just divorce my wife? 
The Old Testament law gave provision for divorce as long as there was some infidelity, adultery involved. But this isn't the question. This isn't the heart of question. And we see in Matthew what the Pharisees are asking Jesus. They're asking, can we divorce for whatever reason that we want? Can we just divorce? What did Moses command you? Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, that what God has joined together, let no man separate. What was the purpose? What was the concession that God gave? It wasn't God's intention for, to give people the opportunity or ability to divorce. It wasn't a command that he gave. It was a concession. And what was the concession based on? Hardness of heart. What is hardness of heart always always connected to? Where does it come from? Sin. Sin, right? So I, I've, I've had so many conversations with people about divorce and, and the, the, what the Bible says and what, what I think. I don't think anything. I think what the Bible says is, is, is the gold standard. When, when God said a man and a woman shall come together and become one flesh, that's what he intended. That's what God intended for a man and a woman. It, Jesus doesn't even answer directly to what Moses said. He supersedes Moses to what God said in the beginning. Maybe there was a concession made later, but this is what God's heart and intention was from the beginning. And I want to say this as gentle as possible, okay? Because I know that there's families that have been ravaged by divorce. There's people who have gone through incredibly difficult things in in the marriage structure god's intention from the beginning was that we could have a relationship that mirrored what his relationship with us would look like in the future that's what marriage is for moses the man from god allowed the concession of the divorce god intended it to to be forever you know a man and a woman to come together And then in verse 9, it says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It's something that God instituted, not man. Marriage is not an institution of, of man. Now, I heard this illustration once, and I think it goes really well. When, when two people get married and they come together, they're like two pieces of paper with glue on both ends, and, they're, and, they're, and they become one. And some time goes by. And what happens to glue after time goes by? It gets hard, Right? And then something happens, sin always is the issue, the hardness of heart. Some sin comes in, and a, a divorce situation happens, and what you have to do, you take those two pieces of paper and you try to pull them apart. What happens? They get torn up and ripped and jacked up. And there's pieces of paper on this paper that are stuck to that paper, and there's pieces of paper on this paper that are stuck to that paper. And the healing process sometimes is hard, and it takes a long time. With God, all things are possible. We're going to see at the end of this study. And that is really the way that, that it should be finished up. 
with God, all things are possible. But the intention now is to refocus on what God's intention was in giving us the institution of marriage. There's an opportunity for us in marriage to be a disciple in Jesus Christ and to die to the flesh. Martin Luther, you guys know Martin Luther, the great reformer in Germany. He said, the greatest means of sanctification in my life is my wife. <laughs> this guy is, you know, he's from like the, the Middle Ages. And we're still reading stuff that he wrote back then. And he's like, the greatest means of God's sanctification in my life is my relationship with my wife. Why? Because there's nobody else that you're ever going to be that close to. There's nobody else that you become one flesh with and that you have to address the things with that person ever. That's it. So you can either continue to work through it and refine it and say, this is something that God wants me to do, because a lot of times that's how it is. It's one person trying to go against the sin and against the issues that are happening and the other person doesn't care or isn't trying. Hopefully it's two people, therefore there's not an unequally yoked scenario, and they could both be trying. But let me tell you something, okay? For those of you who are married and those of you who are single and everybody in between, even if you're a teenager, marriage is difficult. Period. Marriage is hard. Because you have to die to a part of yourself and live for somebody else. I've heard somebody say, hey, marriage is 50-50. Marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. If both parties are putting in 100%, then the marriage will progress as much as it can. But when you start to cut it back to 75 to 50%, people start to get their feelings hurt. The flesh starts to get riled up. I deserve better than this. But remember, the relationship that, that God intended that, that it's, it's supposed to look like is connected to that first study and what we've seen up until now, denial. In the house, verse 10, whenever they go in the house, this is an explicit moment for Jesus to do a private teaching for his disciples. In the house, his disciples asked him again about the So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What is Jesus? This is a very powerful verse. What is Jesus talking about? I believe the guilty party in a marriage situation for somebody who gets divorced, the guilty party is the one that has the sin issue that they will not address. Jesus made concession in Matthew and the, in the law of Moses, made concession for divorce, for adultery, for sin. And what Jesus is saying here is whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If he divorces her for no reason, then in God's eyes, it's not a legitimate divorce and he's committing adultery. And then after that, it's legitimate, right? Or vice versa, if the woman does the same, same thing, it's not a valid, legitimate divorce if it's not on the grounds of adultery, because you haven't tried hard enough. If adultery hasn't happened, you really haven't gone the distance 
And adultery is that sin of the, the giving over of what you've committed to to do with that person. It's the breaking of a covenant. You know, God is very serious about covenants. And marriage is a picture of God's relationship with us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't divorce you. I won't give up on you. No matter what, through thick and thin, I'm always going to be there. And if God, that's his heart and intentions for us, then he wants that to be what our lives look like in marriage. That we have the same opinion for our spouse. As a young person, you may not even know what it's like to be married. Let me tell you again, this is the second time I said it, it's hard. You think being married is going to be so sweet, you guys are going to hug and laugh at each other all the time, and sorry, bud, you know, but girls smell too. (laughs) They do. You're going to get offended. They've got bad breath in the morning. Other weird stuff. (laughs) You're going to start to see each other in a light that you've never seen each other before. And what God wants for us as his disciples, he wants us to crucify the flesh and live for him, follow him, but also crucify the flesh and lay our lives down for the one that's supposed to be the closest to us, our best friend, and to not give up. Verse 13, then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he, greatly, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For if such is the kingdom of God, assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and bless them. Something happens here. <clears throat> we talked about last week how in this society, in this culture, children were not very highly esteemed, highly regarded. In fact, in this culture, women weren't very highly esteemed. They were somewhat of the expendables. And Jesus corrects that. Jesus corrected that in the marriage situation. Did you guys recognize that? Jesus corrected it in the marriage situation by making it seem or showing that men and women were equal. The rabbinical thought of that day was the man was greater than the woman, and he was the one that decided when the divorce was going to happen. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if the man's the one that leaves, etc., etc., if the woman's the one that leaves, etc., etc., this was different. This wasn't what they thought in that day. Jesus changes what the thought process looks like, because women are individual, men are individual, children are loved by God. That he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. That word for rebuked there in the Greek, I can't say any other way than it was a very harsh rebuke. In fact, the only other times that this word rebuke is used, or the most common times, is when they were rebuking the evil spirits and casting out demons. Sometimes that's how I feel when I'm rebuking my kids. <laughs> Get out of here in the name of Jesus. You, you sit over there in that corner. You sit over there. It was a rebuke. It was strong. The disciples to these kids, to these people who were sending these children to Jesus to receive a blessing. 
If you were a parent in Jesus' day and the Messiah was there and he was healing people, wouldn't you want him? Go sit on his lap. Forget about Santa. That guy's a loser. Go, you know, take a picture. Jesus touched my son. He's going to be blessed. There was a relationship that Jesus wanted to have with these kids. He's also breaking what the norm was in keeping the kids separate and not really you know, until the age of 13, not really having much to do with them. These children also can be more clearly understood as, as infants or babies in the context of him talking about who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about the virtues of children. Oh, they're so cute and cuddly. Kids are sinners. Ask some of our parents. Is that what he's talking about, the, the virtues of children or what going to get them into the kingdom of heaven so you have to have the same kind of virtues? No. What's the kind of virtues that children have that Jesus is talking about? Helplessness. Absolute, utter, 100% need of somebody else to take care of me. And when we come before God in that humble state of saying, God, I cannot do this myself, will you wipe my bum bum? I don't know how many times I've heard that, you know, like, can you wipe your own bum bum yet, you know? Again, the idea is, the idea is a a place of helplessness, of a need for somebody else to be that for you. And if you can do it all yourself, then you're going to be in a place where you don't really need God. But here's these kids. These kids, they need help. These kids, they need adults. They need Uh, families that are strong. They need families that are connected to Jesus, who are willing to bring their kids to Jesus and let, let them be with him. And the expression of their desire to be with Jesus and their parents' desire to be with Jesus is is us putting ourselves in that same place of submitting ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, you are God and I am not. I am helpless. I need your help. I want to humble myself. There's nothing that I wouldn't ask you for help for. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took, up, he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed, blessed him, them. So how is it that nobody's going to be able to go into the kingdom of heaven if, unless they become like little children? When we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, in that moment, we are not just saying a prayer. We're not just thinking a thought. We're not just saying that we we believe that by going to church and believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that we're going to go to heaven. We're submitting ourselves to him as a little child submits themselves to their parents or a little child submits themselves to an adult in complete humility, incapable of having anything else to offer. What does a little kid have to offer me? Nothing. I have everything to offer them. And until we come to the place of receiving Jesus as a little child with nothing else to offer, then we become part of his family. Verse 17, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. No one is good, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. 
And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In most of your Bibles, it will be recorded as the rich young ruler, but in Mark's account, it does not record him as the rich young ruler. It records him as, uh, as he was going out, one came running. I believe the reason that Mark did this, and we see how he's done it in other spaces, is he doesn't want to put this guy into a special category that only certain people can identify with. Everybody can identify with this rich young ruler. Everybody can identify with this man who has tried his whole life to do everything right according to the law that he was raised up in. And we can see in his demeanor that as he comes, he's confident in that thing. The first thing he says to Jesus is, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This is a unique question that we see nobody else has asked Jesus about, isn't it? The disciples are so caught up in the here and now and the kingdom that they want to be part of. Jesus, can I sit on your left? Jesus, can I sit on your right? You know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? They're thinking of the now, and this guy's looking forward to eternity, right? There's a difference. There's a distinction. Jesus says, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good but that, but God. You know the command. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. A lot of people say, this guy's a hypocrite. There's nobody that could fulfill the law the way that it was intended to be fulfilled. Au contraire, I would disagree. I believe this man did think that he was doing the absolute best that he could, or just the absolute best. Paul says, in regards to the law, I was blameless. That's Paul the Apostle. He says, in regards to the law, I was blameless. This guy was in the same group as Paul in saying that I didn't do anything wrong, but yet I still fell short. Jesus is the ultimate identifier of those things in our life that make us fall short. When we're doing it on our own, We're going to see in a second, with God, all things are possible. But when we try to do things on our own, there's always a shortness. We don't actually get all the way there. Then Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that a great verse? Here's this guy coming. He's got some level of pride. He is doing good. He's wealthy. He's got great possessions. He's excited. He wants to ask the Messiah about something that doesn't just pertain to this life because he's set. He's good, you know? He's rich. This life is, you know, I'm, I'm set. I'm golden. I do all the right things. I say all the right things. First thing he says to Jesus is the wrong thing. Hey, good teacher, don't call me good. That's just God. Jesus is already starting to point out and he says to him what must i do to inherit eternal life jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him one thing you lack go your way sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions 
So there's the key for the guy. His confidence was in his possessions. And we cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We cannot be partakers of the family of God if our confidence is in what we possess. Whether it be material, personality traits, whatever it is, we, we cannot partake if we put confidence in anything else. Verse 22, but when he said this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That word for possessions is very well translated in the New King James. Stuff. He had a lot of stuff. Land, houses. It, this, this word does not simply financial riches. He was wealthy on the greater scale. When Jesus looked around and saw his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's almost like Jesus is setting them up for this, this epiphany. He's looking around at their response. Because in that day and age, and even in this day and age, unfortunately, I hear so many of these false teachers say, the emphasis was on the possessions. If you had a lot of possessions, then God's blessing was upon you. And if you were doing well, then God loved you and God was taking care of you. That's what they thought. So they looked at this guy who kept the whole law and was, had all these riches, and they would say, the blessings of God are upon this guy. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you sell your stuff and come follow me? And he couldn't do it because his identity were connected to his possessions. And it doesn't matter how great the possessions are. But then he says, Jesus looked around and said, how hard is it for this, those to have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? This word riches is different from that word, the other word possessions, in that it is money. Even for those who have a lot of money. Disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God of God. That's the key there, isn't it? You see how you tweak it just a little bit. The third time it's talked about, Jesus brings it up. He, he doesn't talk about the possessions themselves. He doesn't talk about the riches themselves, but he says and he concludes, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of, of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a psalm there's a few psalms, actually, that talk about how a man's heart being connected to his possessions or what he has in life to offer is, is, is futile. The one that I picked, there was a few, but this is the most explicit, is in Psalm 49, verse 6. And I did the NLT translation for a little bit better read and understanding. They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and, see, and not see the grave. Those who are wise must finally die, just like the foolish and the senseless leaving all their wealth behind. The grave is their eternal home where they will stay forever. They may name their estates after themselves, but their fame will not last. They will die just like animals. This is the fate of fools, though they are remembered as being wise. That's crazy. Estates with names. I actually said a name on Wednesday night when we covered this psalm. I'm about to say it this morning. 
But you know, like a big building that you can't see the top of and it's got a big name at the top. This is me. (laughs) And I got them all over the world because I'm the best. But the people do it all the time. It's not just this one particular person that you may or may not be thinking about. It's a bunch of people that want to put their names to it, as if it, when they die, that th- their name will somehow live on. You know what the Bible says? It's foolishness. It's foolishness. There's another verse that talks about how what the wicked stored up for themselves, God's going to take and give to the righteous. <laughs> there's there's a, a historical evidence of people who were... were intending to have riches and consume the world's pleasures on themselves and they they amassed these these things and, the, and there's things throughout history where god has taken those things away after they died and and somebody in the received it in the in the church or the church received it these people would be furious if they find out they have no control one generation two three four generations removed they can't do anything on the flip side of wealth, I read this quote, and it really, it really hit me. The greatest enemies to faith and obedience are self-satisfaction and pride, and nothing removes the bulwarks more effectively than poverty. Take away the possessions, take away the money, be placed at the bottom for a little bit. You get humble really quickly. We have an opportunity. It's not God saying that we cannot have possessions or we cannot have wealth. It's whether we want to place our trust in those things or not. Because I know men of God who love God who are very wealthy. I know them and I know they love the Lord. And I also can tell from their lives that their confidence is not in the things that they own. Their confidence is not in what that they have worked for and obtained and if you took that all away just like job there'll be a level of brokenness but their faith would be made stronger than it ever had been in the past and there'd be even greater men of faith because it wasn't connected to the stuff that they had the stuff jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of than a rich man to enter the kingdom of god there's a lot of different thought about this I think we just take it for what it, it says. It's not some gate in Jerusalem that was hard to get through. It's not a rope that you try to put around a camel's neck was another interpretation of a, a rope. The reason Jesus said this and he was so extreme about it is because there's no possibility. There's absolutely no possibility that if you think one of your possessions can save you, if you think having something is going to make you a better person, if you think what you own or what you possess is going to give you standing or status before God, there's no way it ever will. Zero, period, null, nothing. And people were greatly astonished, verse 26, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Can I get an amen? amen? Can I get another one? Amen. With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. 
So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is one of those promises that Jesus gives us that you can never really partake in unless you make that decision to give up stuff in your life that you want to hold on to. Peter, in, in his true Peter form, says, hey, what about us? You know, like we've given all this stuff up. And Jesus says, truly, truly, what you've given up, you'll receive a hundredfold in this, in this life. You'll receive eternal life as well. But listen, look at the bottom of that second list that Jesus gives. What's the last thing that he says they will receive on top of the hundredfold of things that they gave up? What does it say? Mothers and children and lands with persecutions. We know, like as believers, that we're going to go through difficulty. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to go through hard times. And the promise will apply. If you give up these things, God will still take care of you. He'll, he'll even give you an abundance of more. But we still have to partake in the persecutions as well. Now, Benny Hinn doesn't like this verse. I mean, he took his Bible, I'm sure, and he cuts out persecutions because he wants hundreds of all the stuff on the earth. He wants the, the, the fame and fortune of this world. But when the persecution comes, there's some sin involved. There's something wrong with the picture. Listen, if God wanted us just to be about health and wealth, the gospel would look very differently. But he allows us to go through trials and tribulations so that we can look more like Jesus. Because he went through trials and tribulations. He lowered himself, again, like last week, to the lowest degree. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Those who think they're on top of the world will be last. Those who humble themselves and place others in front of them. Self-denial, selfishness, and carrying the cross will be elevated, will be lifted up. The three things about life that Jesus wants us as disciples to understand we should have a right view of what marriage is supposed to look like. And I, and I apologize to you guys this morning because we didn't do any, I didn't do you any justice. Like, when we talk about marriage, we should do like a 10-week series and break it down and look at it. That would be awesome. We, we can't even barely touch on it. I know maybe some people may be a little offended. Maybe some people are confused about some of the stuff that we read and, and addressed. Listen, don't be offended. Let's talk about it. The Bible further goes on and expresses why it is supposed to be a certain way. Marriage is going to be something that you're going to have to deal with as a disciple of Jesus. Even if you never get married, how do you deal with that before the Lord? Is how, what you're going to have to deal with before the Lord. And it's connected to marriage. marriage. How? Because you're not married. <laughs> And it's something that he wants to help you through. The, the portion of Scripture in Matthew addresses the single elements. Unfortunately, the Gospel of Mark doesn't because he's giving a different picture for us. 
Another time we can look at it a little bit more in depth, but for today, to be a disciple, self-denial and obedience, picking up the cross in marriage. Number two, kids. Take your kids to Jesus. Receive kids. Become like a child. Helpless before the Lord. This is what I have to offer you, Lord. Nothing. It's a, it's, here's a picture that, that I that I, you know, I drew for you with crayons. It's garbage. I love you, my dear old. It's, it looks terrible. I'm not putting that on my refrigerator. I'm sorry. She has nothing to offer me, but you know what? I'm her father. I love her. So we have to come before the Lord as those children, not trying to act like we have something to offer, because we don't. Lord, we don't have anything to offer you. We love you. Receive us into your kingdom. And then the riches, what standard does that hold in your life today? How important does it make you feel? How does it motivate you? How is your relationship with the Lord in regards to that thing? If he took some things away, how would you react? Would you react like Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, or would you act like Job's wife? Curse God and die. That's what she said to him. Curse God and die. Shall we not accept good as well as adversity from God? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your further instructions for us. And we want to ask you, Lord, how these three things about life apply to each one of us today. How it applies in our, in our marriages. How it applies in our singleness how it applies with our attitude to children, how it applies with our, our, our heart's condition of being like children, how it applies to our possessions, how it applies to in our relationship with you in regards to what possessions we have and if we didn't have them tomorrow. God, we thank you for speaking to our hearts. We ask that for each one of us that you would show us how we can address one of these three things so that we can respond to you this morning in the Holy Spirit and we could pick up our cross, be disciples of the Most High, follow you, and receive a hundred times more in this life and eternal life for all eternity. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.